you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Will you pray with me this morning? Take my lips, O Lord, and speak through them. Take our minds and think with them. Take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Amen. Growing up, I loved answering the phone. A surprise I know coming from someone who has never minded talking. I'm the person who will sometimes answer telemarketer calls just to talk to them. (laughs) The best place to answer the phone, however, was at my grandma Ruth's. Her phone was one of the black rotary phones attached to the wall, the phone that tethered you to the kitchen. Uh, It had a long enough cord that you could sit down at the kitchen table to talk, but that was about it. There was no going in the other room for privacy or for the comfort of the couch. What made her phone so fun to answer was that she didn't have a caller ID. You never knew who was calling, which made it that much more exciting to answer. Thinking about it today, I'm sure it gives many of you anxiety for us who monitor our calls before we answer. Due to the nature of her being the matriarch of our fairly large family, Her phone was constantly ringing with calls from family members from all over. And I think if our family had a hymn that described ourselves, it would be, I love to tell the story. So thanks for putting that in there. It had a distinct ring caused by an actual bell that was held inside. I would hear the ring and take off, begging to answer the phone the whole way, knowing that the answer would be yes. Hello, I would say energetically or if I was feeling fancy in the moment, the Ruth residence. Then you would wait to find out who was on the other side of the line. I would try to guess who it was by their voice before they would tell me. But I loved the way that the call would bring whoever was on the other end right into the very space that you were. Now we've come so far and and we can text and even FaceTime. An unknown caller, though, causes us to pause before we answer, if we even answer at all. Calls are sometimes strenuous. Our family members usually text message or, or call. We don't get one from, we don't like it when we get one from a polite person, probably rebounding from being hung up on all day, offering us an extended car warranty on the car that we sold seven years ago. But calling. Calling was what I thought of while studying this morning's gospel reading. In order to fully get the scripture for today, I think that it's helpful to take one step back and look at the first part of this chapter from Luke. So let me set the scene for you. Luke tells us that Jesus is up on a mountain and has been praying all night. At daybreak, he calls all his disciples who are traveling with him together. And from those disciples, he handpicks the 12 apostles. That's all the information we're given Imagine the thoughts going through their heads as Jesus calls each name. How many is he going to pick? Will I be one? Will I be the last name he picks? I imagine some of them probably felt like I did 
and had the same anxieties that I had in junior high gym class as teams were being picked for the activity of the day. This was going to be the elite, the group closest to Jesus, the group that he was going to invest in, train up, and send forth. They would be given a task that was threefold, to preach, to drive out evil and unclean spirits, and to accompany Jesus. Imagine the feelings of those who had followed Jesus, who had made it clear that they chose him, yet they, in this moment, weren't called to be an apostle. I mean, Judas made the group for heaven's sakes, and we know that didn't go well. Then comes today's reading. Jesus and all the disciples come down from the mountain to find a large crowd. This crowd had all heard that Jesus would be teaching, and they had come to hear him and to be healed. What happens next is a powerful sign of Jesus' healing power as it begins to flow out from him. Everyone tries to touch him, and everyone is healed. To me, it would be okay if the story ended there. The Bible tells us that they were healed of their troubled spirits. Today, we view that term maybe to mean uh, mental health issues, spiritual, Im spiritual impurity. But in this moment, Jesus takes it all from them. He heals their broken hearts that have been segregated apart from their communities. He takes their sickness. He takes their depression. He sets equal what the world and sin have made unequal. Stop there, right? It's been a great day. I can only imagine the worship and the praise happening from both the disciples who have just witnessed this to the people who have just experienced it. Give the benediction, play the postlude, head to Cracker Barrel. But that's not what Jesus does. Instead, he begins to teach and to proclaim. I love that the Bible specifies that as Jesus begins this sermon, it says that they're on a level plane. Everyone at the same height. No one is placed higher. No one pushed lower. All were level. Jesus, it's important to note, turns to his disciples for this message. Blessed are the poor. Or might we say, as the word is also translated, blessed are the humiliated. Blessed are those who now hunger. Blessed are those who weep. What sorrow awaits the rich? What sorrow awaits the fat and prosperous? What sorrow awaits those who now laugh? What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds? These words can seem harsh. These words are something we all need to sit with for a minute. Is this a smack on the hand from Jesus? Imagine the feeling some of the disciples must be feeling in this moment. So why? Why does Jesus begin to make these statements? Why does he seem to lift the group who had come sick, troubled, and diseased up while foretelling the opposite fate of others? Well, first let's look at the context. The Gospel of Luke is looked at in terms, if you looked at it in terms of a church building, would be the fellowship hall. This is the gospel where we really see community. We see Jesus' heart for the marginalized, his heart for the poor, his heart for those pushed to the side. It's the gospel where we most forcefully see the church challenged to mirror the love and reconciling work. It's the gospel where the Gentiles finally get the answer that they have long awaited for, 
as whether they were a part of God's work, of God's people, of God's kingdom. We also have a strong hunch that the Gospel of Luke appears to be written to people of middle-class wealth, people from both sides of the aisle. Now, how do we know this? Great question. Thanks for asking. I'm still paying a lot of money for learning this at seminary. We know that Jesus sends his disciples saying, take no money. In Mark, the disciples are sent by Jesus saying, take no copper. In Luke, it's take no silver. In Matthew, it's take no gold. Luke is middle of the road. Jesus is speaking to a group of people that contextually is comprised of both poor, middle class, and okay off people. However, his message is clear. He's proclaiming that this group of people, marginalized and labeled as less, are blessed. They're called, they're valued, they are important. This was Jesus' mission. He was prophesied as being this person long before his earthly life began. He speaks to it here in Luke. If we go back a few chapters, we see Jesus in Luke 4 teaching in the temple. He is handed a scroll and reads from the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and to proclaim proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you know what that refers to? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor? That refers to an idea known as the year of Jubilee. A special year when all is set right. It comes from Leviticus. Every seventh day, a Sabbath day when you stop and rest. Every seventh year, a Sabbath year. Every seven times seven year, a special Sabbath year. But on that 50th year of the cycle, the year of Jubilee, the slave set free. The debt paid off. The old home place that was lost, it's yours again. All made new, all set right, all at at peace. The world in perfect harmony. It made no sense to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate because in this year, on the year of Jubilee, you would have to give it all back. Every inch of the earth touched by the grace of God, no one better than the other, no one becoming great at the expense of others. It is the biggest expression of the work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, the year of Jubilee. Now, if there's a scholar in the room, they'll probably say there is no evidence that the year of Jubilee was ever practiced in Israel. You can never have any fun if there's a scholar in the room. So what? It was a hope. It was Jesus coming to proclaim that all were made right with God. All were valued. All were called for a purpose. So what does it mean for us? This week I've continuously reflected on the idea of calling and on the ones Jesus is now lifting up. The ordinary, the ones struggling with everyday woes and hurts that we do. Jesus could have chosen the most perfect to be apostles. He was training them to lead the church, so my first thought would be choose the church people. Choose the well-versed rabbis. Many would say, choose the ones who have lived a more perfect and wholesome life. Choose those who had more money to give to the cause. Choose the ones who had more gifts to offer. But who did Jesus pick on the mountain? Who did Jesus say were blessed on the plain? The less than perfects.
the ones who, who had simply come, the ones who, better yet, were relying on and trusting in him. The 12 men who are recorded as being chosen that day to be apostles were far from perfect. We read of James and John, the sons of thunder, men who were colorful characters who didn't back down from a fight, men who let pride get in the way, resulting in them asking to be at Jesus' left and right hand in glory. We have Thomas, who is later forever labeled as Doubting Thomas just because he wanted to see the risen Christ like others. We have Peter, who later denies Jesus. And of course, we have Judas, the one that Jesus took to be his own just like he did the other 11, who sold him, who turned him over, who betrayed him. Yet Jesus washed his feet, and he served him communion during the Last Supper just as he did the others. The lesson here is that we're not going to be perfect. We don't have to be perfect. We are loved. We are chosen. We are called, just as we are, to become something greater. We have a Savior who has come to announce the year of Jubilee. I reflected a lot over my own calling while working through this scripture, so I thought I might share my story with you. I had always grown up in the church. I never had a dramatic conversion experience. The church was what I had always known and where I was always taught something that I believed in. I was lucky, lucky to partially grow up in a church where my grandpa had served as the pastor, then retired, then came back on his staff. Around the end of my freshman year of college, I began to do more in our church and eventually started doing roles that would take me to the chancel. I knew that something about me was completely different when I was serving in this way. I felt completely whole and completely connected to God. Others started to begin to point out gifts that they saw in me, Comments like, I think you're going to follow in your grandfather's footsteps became the normal routine after church conversation. The more I thought about it, the more I felt a calling to become a pastor. I looked at myself as solving issues in our church and bridging gaps. I always told myself, though, that it just wouldn't work. I was in college to become a teacher. I couldn't head to seminary with nothing but a degree in elementary education, on top of that, I hated the idea of moving from place to place. I kept saying no. Then in God's humor that summer, we had a new pastor appointed to our church. He had, of all things, his bachelor's in education. He immediately began investing in me. He became not only a mentor, but a friend. We began to have a lot of conversations surrounding this new calling, and he encouraged me to start the certified candidate for ministry track something very wonderfully designed by our denomination to help those discern a calling and a prerequisite to the ordination track. One Sunday as we were singing the words to our closing hymn, I began to cry as we sang the words, Here I am, Lord. I have heard you calling in the night. I will go, Lord, if you lead me. I will hold your people in my heart. That settled it. That was my word from God. I was moving to Kentucky to attend seminary, then moving back to West Ohio Conference to not only be a pastor, but I was going to be a great pastor. I arrived to the seminary energetic and excited and quickly realized it wasn't for me. I missed teaching. I missed the classroom. All of a sudden, someone who thrived on the relationship building with students had none of it. Through a lot of prayer, a lot of prayer, 
conversations with friends, conversations with my pastor at the time, I realized that I, I had distorted my calling. I realized that back home I had the perfect mix. I was working in the school all week and then helping in worship on Sundays. I wasn't called to be in a role exclusively in the walls of a church. I was called to help bring the church to all families I encountered and to show the love of Christ to the children I taught. My calling was different. My question coming to Andover, when I wrestled with moving from a church I loved, it was all settled when on that very Sunday the closing hymn was, Here I am, Lord. Everyone is called. Everyone has a God-given purpose. Everyone can show the love of God wherever they are, even if it's just simply being present. Mr. Rogers once said, if you could only sense how important you are to the lives of those you meet, how important you can be to the people you may never even dream of, there is something of yourself that you leave at every meeting with another person. I once heard a story of a boy named Paul. He lived in a small town in the Pacific Northwest some years ago. He was just a little boy when his family became the proud owners of one of the first telephones in the neighborhood. It was one of those wooden boxes attached to the wall with a shiny receiver hanging on the side of the box and the mouthpiece attached to the front. Young Paul listened with fascination as his mom and dad used the phone and he discovered that somewhere in that small box caught a telephone lived an amazing person. Her name was Information Please. There was nothing that she didn't know. Information Please could supply anyone's phone number and even the correct time. Paul's first personal experience with Information Please came one day when he was home alone and had whacked his finger with a hammer. The pain was terrible and he didn't know what to do when suddenly he thought of the telephone. He quickly pulled a footstool up to the phone and climbed up and unhooked the receiver. He held it to his ear and said, information please. There was a click or two and then a small clear voice spoke, information. I hurt my finger, Paul wailed on the phone. Is it your mother home? Nobody's home but me, Paul cried. Are you bleeding? No, Paul said. I hit my finger with a hammer and it hurts. Can you open the ice box, she asked. Yes, he responded. Then go get some ice and hold it to your finger. Paul did as she had told him and it helped a lot. Well, after that, Paul called information please for everything. <laughs> she helped him with his geography, his math. She taught him how to spell the word fix. She told him what to feed his pet chipmunk. And then when Paul's pet canary died, she listened to his grief tenderly and then said, Paul, always remember that there are other worlds to sing in. Somehow that helped and Paul felt better. When Paul was nine years old, he moved with his family to Boston. As the years passed, he missed information, please, very much. Some years later, as Paul was on his way out west to go to college, his plane landed in Seattle and he dialed his hometown operator and said, information, please. Miraculously, he heard that same small, clear voice that he knew so well. Information? Paul hadn't planned this, but suddenly he blurted out, could you please tell me how to spell the word fix? There was a long pause, and then came the soft voice answer. I guess your finger must be all healed up by now. Paul laughed. 
so it really is still you. Do you have any idea how much you meant to me during that time when I was a little boy? I wonder, she said, if you knew how much your cause meant to me. I never had any children of my own, and I used to look forward to your cause so much. Paul told her how much he had missed her over the years and asked her if he could call her again when he was back in the area. Please do, she said. Just ask for Sally. Three months later, Paul was back in Seattle, and this time he heard a different voice answer. He asked for Sally. Are you a friend, the operator asked. Yes, a very old friend, Paul answered. Well, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, she said, but Sally had been working part-time over the past few years because she was sick. She died five weeks ago. Before he could hang up, the operator said, wait a minute, did you say that your name was Paul? Yes, he said. Well, Sally left a message for you. She wrote it down in case you called. It says, when Paul calls, tell him that I still say, there are other worlds to sing in. Paul thanked her and hung up, and he did know what she meant. In this story, the operator used her gifts to help tell the message of God's redeeming love to a child in the only way that she knew how. In her role, in her own calling. She wasn't a traditional pastor. She was an ordinary person doing her routine job, redeemed and called by God. Friends, you too are redeemed and called by God. You've been called to share God's love and God's message of hope wherever it is that you find yourself daily. You are special, you are loved, and you are called. Will you pray with me? God, today we're reminded of your all-consuming love of your redeeming grace and of the call you've placed on each of us, a call to tell others of your love, a call to be the light of Christ in a world shadowed by darkness. When we leave today, may we go into the world to give ourselves for others. Amen. My absolute favorite thing to do in ministry is to bend down, I guess pre-COVID, and serve communion to a child. To get eye level with them and to tell them how much Jesus loves them. My words are always, this bread and this juice reminds us that God's love for you is so great. Today as we take communion, might I say to you, this bread and this cup shows you how much God loves you.